You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Professor Daniel Dennett about his magisterial memoirs, I've Been Thinking, about the world of philosophy and philosophers, the inside stories covering materialism, naturalism, consciousness, free will, evolution, artificial intelligence, God and religion. Dan is an atheist. That's no spoiler. Welcome, Dan. It's great to see you again. Congrats on, I've been thinking, I, I loved it. I felt I lived your life with you. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be back with you, Robert. All right. Well, let's start with just some quick opening questions, just as a little teaser. Um, I, I loved your story about Schmess, uh, which probes philosophy. Schmess is a, a variant of chess, as you've created it where the king can move two squares, not one, which makes mate a little harder, of course, uh, but no one studies chess. No, as far as I know, nobody does, and certainly nobody plays it, or I don't think they do. Uh, I just invented it because it's a perfectly describable game, and just as there are many truths of chess, and people have spent their lives yeah. mathematically proving various things about chess. There are all the truths about Schmidt. <laughs> and then there are the truths about the mistakes that people make in their in their arguments about Schmess. <laughs> and nobody does that. It's not worth doing. But uh, I think a lot of philosophy is in danger of being Schmess. It's a, a, a technically uh, possible playpen for intellectual work it's just not worth doing uh the great the great canadian psychologist donald hebb once said if it's not worth doing it's not worth doing well yeah, and that, I think a lot of very profound <laughs> yeah, i think a lot of a lot of philosophy is very well done very well done by experts but it's not clear that it's worth doing. <laughs> okay, well, well, the flip side of that, and this is maybe a little more serious, uh, you've had so many contributions in your philosophical career, really remarkable insights and, and, and new ways of thinking about stuff. And uh, just as, a, as an opener, what are, what are, say, three of your favorite insights or contributions? Very quickly, just give us an overview. Very quickly. Um, well, certainly in, in Consciousness Explained, I described what I called Cartesian materialism in the Cartesian theater, the idea that there's a movie running inside your head. Mm. No, there isn't. There isn't. The last image in vision is on your retina, and after that, it's, it, it's all uh, uh, spike trains, and there's no movie running in your head. There just seems to be. And a lot of people have a really hard time getting rid of the idea that there's a, a, a what I call a Cartesian theater running in their head. Mm -hmm. um, another one of my ideas is the intentional stance, the idea that, that we can adopt the strategy of considering something to be an agent with beliefs and desires. Uh, you can consider a thermostat to be an agent, and it's Job is to keep the heat within a certain range. That's the sort of simplest agent you could have. But insects are agents. Nerve cells 
are agents, we are agents, animals are agents, robots are agents, and this is it's a hugely simplifying but risky way of getting prediction and explanation about very complicated things. Uh, and I guess uh, the third idea I would mention was just, if you're not a Darwinian, if you're not a post-Darwinian, you're missing the boat. <laughs> so many issues in philosophy are transformed by an appreciation of what Darwin created. Yeah, I think you made the comment once that uh, uh, Darwinism is the single greatest idea that humans have ever made. If I could uh, give a prize, I'd give it to Darwin, yes. <laughs> yeah. let, let me ask you a, a question, uh, because we've been talking a little bit about um, uh, alien intelligences, and would it be a, a, a principle of universal law like gravitation that Darwinian processes would affect life wherever it may be, uh, however life may be radically different? Uh, is, is would that be a, a a possible universal law? Well, I think it, if you if you think about it right, yes. Um, uh, if you have chaos, then you have chaos, and if you get order and chaos, and you can nature will just create ratchets that will allow design to happen. That's mm. a Darwinian process, mm. and uh, the first thing that can reproduce, then makes another copy, and that makes another copy, and that makes another copy. And maybe the first thing that reproduced took a thousand years to reproduce. It doesn't matter. It has no competition. But once the ball gets rolling, then you get life, and it may have many forms on other planets that are entirely unlike the forms. It might not be carbon-based. Uh, we don't know, but we could be. she should be open-minded about that. But uh, uh, yes, uh, I think Darwinism is the key to making interesting things happen in the universe. Without, without the Darwinian ratchet, mm. it, it would be a very monotonous universe, mm. as, as uh, David Deutsch has pointed out. Okay, let, let me just give a brief bio, Dan, um, and then we'll get into the real substance of the book and all of the uh, just the marvelous ideas and categories you've dealt with. Uh, Daniel C. Dennett is one of the world's leading philosophers, the university professor emeritus at Tufts University and the author of Path Setting Books, all of which are great. Consciousness Explained, I'm just mentioning a few, Breaking the Spell, Religion is a Natural Phenomena, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, and From Bacteria to Bach and Back, The Evolution of Minds. So, Dan, let's uh, start with uh, major topics. We'll start with consciousness. Um, you take, I think would be fair to say, a deflationary approach to consciousness as a kind of illusion, but are your views caricatured as self-refuting? The idea being, if you have an illusion that you're conscious, you are conscious. Well, <laughs> thank you. Nicely put. Um, yes, my view is deflationary in an important sense. And that is, I'm resisting the inflationary uh, views of other people who... Just get it in their head, and this is an ancient idea, but Descartes made it 
uh, uh, central that we are we know more about what's going on in our minds than anybody else could possibly know we are we're sort of have papal infallibility about what's going on in our heads no we don't no we don't get rid of that idea and recognize that your brain can trick you and you don't know where your thoughts are coming from right now i'm speaking to you the words are coming out of my mouth i don't know how they're being produced uh you're listening to them you don't know what's happening in your brain that allows you to understand them. We are, in fact, remarkably ignorant <laughs> about what's going on in our brain that makes all of this happen. And so the first-person point of view is not a privileged position. It's underprivileged. That's <laughs> a good thing. That's a good thing because uh, if you if you had to try to understand everything going on in your brain, you wouldn't have time to do anything else. Evolution has sculpted our brains to give us information about what matters now so we can save ourselves, so we don't fall over cliffs or get hit, eaten by predators and we can find our next meal and find a mate. These are the <laughs> important things. And uh, so we're our brains are tuned up to get really good information about the things that matter and that means that we don't have good information about how it happens. Is an analogy in a computer, or a weak one, but an analogy between machine language, compiling, and all the things once you get to a user interface in which we're dealing with little icons on the screen. But in reality, it's all machine language, which if we saw, we'd have no idea how it worked. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, the user interface is often called the user illusion. Uh, because, you know, there aren't little files that you can drag around in the computer. Uh, uh, files are, in fact, spread out all over your 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 cam, uh, your, your uh, uh, disk or your cloud storage. You don't need to know about that stuff. You have this illusion that everything is right in front of you uh, and the screen makes it visible to you. And the only difference between the user illusion of the computer and the user illusion going on in your brain is that since there aren't any eyes in your brain, there doesn't have to be a show going on in your brain. The brain, as it were, mainlines the illusion directly and responds to it. Uh, and, and if you saw how that was going on, you wouldn't understand that either. <laughs> You uh, begin with talking about two problems that uh, very early in your career, maybe even in your thesis ideas, uh, that have been the fundamental drivers of really everything that you've, you've done. The first being how clumps of molecules can be about something. The word has been coined an intentionality, which has a specific philosophical meaning, aboutness. And the second is how these clumps of molecules can be conscious and having this feeling of, of first-person actuality. Um, and you had your first book, your thesis on content and consciousness, paper on intentional systems. So just frame for us, we'll talk about more these two kinds of problems. Well, I, the first step I made, and it was sort of a lucky guess, maybe. I, I, I'm not sure I was really sure that it was right. Content first, then consciousness. We want to understand content 
before we understand consciousness because we have very simple things that have content that respond to meaning in the world. And whether we're talking about a bacterium or an amoeba or a sea slug or a lobster, don't worry about consciousness. They have nervous systems or they have systems that are sensitive to meaning, the meanings that matter to them. So that's content. That's intentionality. Hmm. Consciousness has got to be built on top of that. It is it is a result, an effect of content, not the other way around. Now, hmm. one of my uh, sternest critics and opponents over the years, John Searle, who turned that absolutely upside down and said, no content without consciousness. Hmm. And I think that's in a nutshell, the big difference between Searle and me, he thinks consciousness comes first. And I say, no, no, it's, it's the sophisticated later, later arrangement. There have been, there have been contentful actions on this planet for over 3 billion years. Consciousness, our kind of consciousness is a very recent phenomenon. Now I have followed both you and John Searle for you know thirty years now, and the, uh, I, I absolutely agree with your distinction. But I would also say that you guys are sitting on the same side of the table in term in terms of what he would call biological naturalism and what you would call standard materialism or or physicalism about the brain, as opposed to a whole large group of people who seem to be increasing in their uh, at least influence who uh, say that is uh, that's not going to work, that you need something beyond the physicality, whether it's panpsychism or consciousness only or a whole series of rather bizarre ideas. Uh, but in this primary question about the physicality of consciousness, uh, you and Searle, you know, are, are twins. Yeah, yeah, we, we agree about that. Um, uh, uh, but John hasn't uh, tried to come up with a positive theory the way I have. Uh, so that's one of the big differences. Yes, it's it's sort of regrettable, but not surprising to see that uh, now that materialism reigns, uh, really, uh, we've gotten rid of elan vital vitalism, the idea that life is some magical, mystical spark. Uh, no, no, life is microbiological and chemical engineering all the way up. Uh, no, no mystery stuff, no wonder tissue there. And, and the same thing is true of consciousness. Uh, uh, now that's hard for many people to swallow because it means they have to, uh, they have to give up the idea of the soul as a sort of pearl of special stuff. They, they want it to be magic. They want it to be real magic. That's part of the inflationism. I, I love that in the book. Uh, talk about the difference between real people want real magic, which is not real, and magicians, of course, uh, do not real magic, but that is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my great, friend, part, great part of the book. Great part. My my friend Lee Siegel, a, a, a wonderful philosopher and magician, uh, wrote a, wrote a book called Neto Magic, which is a, a great read. 
And in it, he has a little postscript where he says, I'm writing a book on magic. My friends say, ask real magic. And I say, no, uh, 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 not thaumaturgy, not magical spells, card tricks, sleight of hand, and so forth. Uh, and then he goes on to say, in other words, by real magic, they mean the kind of magic that isn't real. <laughs> uh, the kind of magic you can actually do is not real magic. Uh, and... Uh, that's become sort of one of my main slogans. There's no real magic. The the stagecraft, the brilliant design, the incredible, prodigious use of materials and so forth to make these things happen, that's unbelievably breathtaking and wonderful. Yeah. But it ain't magic. All right, let's talk specifically about your theory of consciousness. As, and as I've seen it, uh, I see three kind of uh, big ideas. Correct me, please. Uh, the first you've already been discussing, no Cartesian theater, no inner witness kind of viewing all this stuff, no inner movie, that's one. Second, that, uh, and this is a key one, multiple drafts of content in the brain and different modules or however we want to describe it that vie for influence, that what hits our primary sense. And you you have a nice term for that called fame in the brain, whichever becomes the most famous at any given moment. And then a third I see is the self as what you call a center of na narrative gravity. So th yeah. those three ideas seem to be the foundation of your theory. Yeah, that, that's good. You've got it exactly right. Uh, as usual, you, you're, a, you're a very astute reader. Um, uh, let's talk about the self as a center of narrative gravity. Uh, because actually, this is what's different about our brains compared with, say, uh, a supercomputer, a digital computer. Hmm. Digital computer has an operating system. And that lays down the law. This is what happens first. This is what happens next. It's very bureaucratic. There, there's, a, there's a master uh, traffic cop that directs things, that times things, that orders things. And that's... Where the that's where the strength of computers comes from. T Turing has a wonderful sentence in his original piece on where he introduces the Turing test about how digital computers are super slavish followers of the rules that they're built into them. Ain't nothing like that in your brain. There's no operating system. There's no there's no master scheduler. It's all a competition in the brain. But out of that competition comes order, collaboration. Now, this is one of nature's great ideas, the idea of opponent processes, which one tugs one way, one tugs the other way, and they, they achieve a balance. That's how your eyes work. Which way do your eyes move? Your eyes move every few seconds. No, every few hundred milliseconds, hmm. about four or five times a second. And and that's controlled by muscles that are opponent muscles, move left, move right, move up, move down. But the muscles themselves are controlled in the frontal eye fields by, by cells that are basically saying, boring, been there, let me look somewhere else. And cells that say, no, 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 I like, I want to stay here. So there's, there's, there's little agents in there that are 
having a little battle over where your eyes should move next. And usually, this is beautifully worked out, and you see what just what you need to see when you need to see it. Your eyes dart around very fast. Now, magicians take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. They know how to get one set of those agents to look over here instead of over here. While they're doing something over here, they're getting you to look over here. And it works like a charm. In fact, one of the amazing facts of magic is that when you first learn how to do magic tricks, it's hard to believe in the power of conjuring. It's hard to believe that you can actually do things right in front of people's eyes that they don't see. But if you if you misdirect them right, you can. You can, you can stuff an egg into your mouth and nobody sees you putting it into your mouth because they're looking somewhere else at the moment you do it. It's yeah. just amazing. Yeah, that, that, that's a uh, wonderful uh, examples you use in the book to uh, uh, to to let us understand that what we think we the verisimilitude the the reality of what we think we see we really don't. And magic is a is a wonderful way to express it. Now let, let's talk about uh, our, our our mutual friend Dave Chalmers, the hard problem, yeah. uh, which you say uh, evaporates your term, I think when hundreds of lesser problems are solved or in the process of solving scientifically, that the hard problem will incrementally uh, dissolve or, or evaporate. Um, yeah. Now, those scientific problems, uh, Dave would call uh, the easy problems. I think it doesn't mean they're easy to do. They may take dozens and hundreds of years to do, but they are. you have a clear way to go about understanding how those things work. Um, but he would say, and many would say, that you solve all of those and you still haven't dealt with the phenomenology of consciousness. Yeah, that's been David's line all along. And uh, uh, our mutual friend, David Rosenthal, a philosopher, uh, my one of my favorite lines from Dave Rosen, David Rosenthal was, uh, the three of us, Chalmers, Rosenthal, and I were walking in the desert at one of the Tucson meetings. And David Rosenthal said to David Chalmers, David, I love your distinction between the hard problem and the easy problems, except for one thing. He said, what's that? He says, you've got the labels mixed. <laughs> the easy problems are the hard problems, and the hard problem is the easy problem. There isn't any hard problem. Uh, and I have a, a wonderful analogy with magic here, too. And uh, 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 a magician named Ralph Hull many years ago had a card trick, which he called the tuned deck. Hmm. And the whole point, this was a trick he did just for his fellow magicians. And he bamboozled his fellow magicians for years. They wouldn't, he, they wanted to buy the trick. He wouldn't sell it to them. And like a lot of magic, the trick is over before you even think it's begun. Mm-hmm. The trick is all in the name of the trick. And it's all in one of the three words. Mm. Not tuned or deck, it's the. Mm. What Hull did was he said, I've got a new trick. It's called the tuned deck. Trick's over. <laughs> he now proceeds to do a trick that they actually all know. But they think that and, it's something- yeah. But they think it's a new trick. Yeah, and they can't. So, 
and he does some fall girl buzz buzz and so forth. He, they know that's not it. But uh, they, they they get obstreperous. Magicians know how to foil other magicians' tricks, so they 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 get obstreperous. They interfere and they prevent him from doing. I'm not going to tell too much magic here. <laughs> they prevent him from doing a type A trick. So they've eliminated that. Well, maybe he's doing a type B trick. So they prevent him from doing a type B trick. Well, maybe he's doing a type C trick. So they prevent him from doing a type C trick. Well, maybe he's doing a type D trick. They prevent him from doing a type D trick. They don't have any any more hypotheses. Well, the fact is he was doing an A trick the first time. The second time he was doing a C trick. And then he went back to the A trick. And he's just staying ahead of them. And what they are not doing is realizing it's all the easy tricks. That's all he's doing. <laughs> and it's a, it's a mistake of addition. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned the uh, Tucson Conference toward a science of consciousness, which, uh, which uh, 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 Stuart Hammeroff and Dave Chalmers and others have put, have put together. And yeah. I was at the 20th anniversary in 2014, and we did a tell, we, closer to the truth, we did yeah. some shows there. We, we interviewed you. We had some great times. You made at that at that at that uh, meeting when you got up to speak uh, one of the cleverest remarks I've ever heard in my life, and I just loved it. Uh, you said as you got up, first thing you said, and you, you have to know the science of consciousness. There are a lot of serious scientists there and philosophers dealing with serious subjects. Obviously, you, Dave Chalmers, uh, uh, Stu Hameroff has his own ideas, uh, but there's also a proliferation of literally dozens of people with the most bizarre ideas that post their things. And you got up and you said, I feel like a policeman at Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite Actually, a little better than that, because I said, now I know what it is like. Ah, better. <laughs> what it was like to be a policeman at Woodstock. Right. Yeah. That is better. That's great. Now, look, I, I have to give Dave a little bit of, uh, of airtime here. And he had a remark at that same conference um, uh, about you, which I thought was was very funny. And he, he sort of said, you know, we ha we're at this conference. You know, the hard problem. Everybody has crazy theories about a hard problem. He was referring to himself and panpsychism. Every theory is crazy. He said even Dan Dennett has a crazy theory about the hard problem because he thinks it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, rem I I remember that. Well, Dave, Dave and I are, are on good, friendly terms. Uh, unlike a few of my other critics, uh, we're we're not we're we're still good friends. Although we make no bones about the fact we think each other is bonkers. One time, one time he said, "Dan, I know your arguments, and I I don't have any any." knock down drag out refutation of them but i just i i just can't i can't accept them i just can't accept them and i said <laughs> okay i won't bother trying those arguments out on you anymore david have you considered a change of diet <laughs> or, the, or the water um <laughs> uh, he, he didn't appreciate that but <laughs> Uh, you, you talk about um, uh, two ideas that you said you take a middle ground between, and, I, and it relates directly to these points. On the one hand, you you have uh, Jerry Fodor's, uh, 
very distinguished psychologist who, who, who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, you said between Jerry Fodor's industrial strength realism about consciousness and the eliminativism or limitative materialism of Pat and Paul uh, Churchland. Um, and you talk about your ways of thinking as a middle ground between these ideas. Why, why yeah, is that? Mild realism. Um, uh, Jerry's idea was that uh, if you really have beliefs, it's got to be because you've got these things like sentences in the head written in the language of thought. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, that's just too strong. That's that's uh, uh, I one time called it hysterical realism, but that's a <laughs> no no term these days. Um, and so I I wrote a paper called Real Patterns, which is about reality. It's about what makes something real, and something's real if there's a pattern that you can detect that allows you to do better than chance at predicting what what the next part of the pattern is. Hmm. It's if you've got complete chaos, complete randomness, then you, you can't predict the next item in the series at all. You can't predict the next pixel on the screen, but real patterns are any simplification that gives you a little edge. So the intentional stance finds all kinds of real patterns and they're just as real as dollars and voices and baseball games, you know, what, mm. what's, what's, what's the Moonlight Sonata made of? <laughs> it's a pattern. Is it a pattern of notes on a page? Is it a pattern of sounds uh, uh, on the piano? Uh, it's the same pattern, differently materially realized, but they're all real. And how how does that articulate with eliminativism? Oh, good. Um, uh, eliminativism is is a sort of uh, puritanical view. It says <laughs> there's, just, there's just atoms in motion and physics, and uh, maybe neuro neurophysiological signaling. But let's let's just get rid of this intentional stance altogether. There's there really aren't any beliefs, and there really isn't any consciousness. Uh, 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 and some people might go on and say, yeah, we're all really zombies. Well, I say uh, the very idea of a zombie is is confused. Uh, if If you mean a creature with a Cartesian theater and and a and a dualistic mental life yeah then we are all we're all zombies but we're reflective speaking zombies and the only difference between that kind of zombie uh, and a so-called normal human being is that whereas the normal human being has a stream of consciousness the zombie has a stream of unconsciousness which has all the same properties. Mm -hmm. All the same powers. Consciousness is a functional notion, and uh, you don't need to have any mystery for that. Uh, go, let's go into a little bit more depth on illusionism um, yeah. and, and what that word means in in your theories. Uh, I know you referred to Anil Seth's uh, controlled hallucination. We've talked to Anil uh, about that. Uh, as yeah. 
one example, the user interface virtual machine um, in, in enriching the idea of illusion because illusion has a connotation oh, uh, yeah. in, in common, uh, in common uh, discourse, which I know you don't mean. Yeah. Many of my best friends and, and, and supporters say, Dan, drop the word illusionism, mm -hmm. uh, which I've been using recently. And um, I've decided maybe maybe this is a tactical error. No, I think the younger generation understands about user illusions, realizes that user illusions are good things, that they, they make life easier. They help you control and understand things. And, and we're not victims of them. We're blessed with user illusions, which, which make the world easier to deal with. Uh, and the whole idea of the Internet of Things and so forth, it's its creating uh, valuable user illusions. Color color vision is, is a user illusion. Atoms aren't colored. We know that. Uh, but thank goodness we have this illusion of color, and it's, it's as real as real can be. But it's also, there's a... <laughs> It's a real illusion, <laughs> and it's a very valuable one. And the people who don't have color vision are missing a whole lot. Hmm. Uh, but but they're not missing the intrinsic redness of anything because there's no such thing as intrinsic redness. Uh, when I uh, considered your your whole approach to use your illusion, I, I had this um, odd resonance um, because I've talked to Donald Hoffman, who I'm sure you know. Uh, yes. uses a similar argument about the user illusion to support precisely the opposite conclusion, which is not only that consciousness not it, 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 that consciousness is the only reality, that everything else is the uh, part of the user illusion. So he's using a the user interface um, and the user illusion to come to. Ex uh, literally diametrically the opposite conclusion which is that the only thing that exists at all is consciousness yeah well i think he's just overstepped it's you know uh, it's whoops he just went one step too high <laughs> uh, uh, otherwise i think he he has some has some good ideas but i think he he uh, you know we all make mistakes and i think that's his mistake is just taking a good idea and pushing it a little too far, which is what people should try to do. Yeah, good. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, that's what we try to do on Closer to Truth. We try to push yeah. ideas as far as we yeah. can and see see what happens. Uh, that's the that's the fun of what what we do and look a little bit beyond the horizon in in all the areas that um your cosmos consciousness uh, meaning all of these things see and see what happens with 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 rational thought i mean people always ask us to feature this person or that person and i look at it and it just even though the idea might be interesting this it just it just doesn't pass the 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 the, the rational test that this is not someone's yeah. opinion that would make sense i mean that's an arbitrary judgment um have you been surprised by the the growth of what seems to be strong growth of panpsychism among philosophers not just dave chalmers uh, galen strawson who writes you know very interesting and strong papers philip goff others uh, who have uh, who have sort of gotten on this uh, 
bandwagon, the more neuroscience has progressed as I've followed it. And since my doctorate in neuroscience, you know, almost 55, 60 years ago, um, as neuroscience has progressed enormously, but during this period of time, panpsychism, which is sort of the refutation of the of the of the success of neuroscience in a ultimate sense, has increased. Yeah, um, I don't know whether I've been surprised. I've been I've been disappointed, of course. Uh, but but one way to look at it is this: this is what philosophers do. They dig in their heels, and they bravely put forward whatever view goes against what seems to be the the growing consensus, because the growing consensus just might be wrong, and, and they're going to stake their claim on being the grand refuter of something that, that they think is getting ahead of steam that it doesn't deserve. And you know, sometimes that's the thing to do, uh, but you uh, you pay a big price for that. You, you're looked at as sort of wacky. Um, I have a, a a one sentence refutation of panpsychism as a theory. You know, philosophers talk about theories, mm. but usually a philosophical theory is just a slogan. There's nothing more to it than it's it's a well-honed slogan, mm. but it doesn't predict anything in particular. Uh, it just sits there and glistens and defies you to uh, to to refute it. Well, uh, my my uh, question to panpsychists is: Here's another theory, which I call to panpsychism. My alternative to panpsychism is pan-niftyism. Every atom, every electron, every photon, every rock is nifty. <laughs> Everything's nifty. Everything's nifty. Now, tell me what follows from your theory that doesn't follow from mine. <laughs> you, you know, on this, I'd have to say, again, that, that you and John Searle are uh, bedmates on this. Uh, John had a comment that panpsychism is like spreading a... Uh, Thin layer of jam across the all of uh, all of reality, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. You know, John uh, <laughs> can turn a phrase. <laughs> um, uh, you talk about slogans, and I, I'm just going to throw some some of these slogans at you uh, that um, that sometimes you are uh, classified as or accused as, and so just just give me your quick sense, yes or no? Are you you? How do you feel about the following terms? I came up with four of them, some from your book. Uh, are you a, uh, a verificationist? Are you a functionalist? Are you a an eliminative materialist? And are you a behaviorist? So those four, any, any of those, yeah. none of the above. Yes and no on all. <laughs> and now, now I'll, I'll go well, That's I'll go interesting. Back. Yes and no is interesting. Um, the idea that there's a reality beyond verification that there are things in themselves that we can never know yeah. is it's a possible idea and there are many things we'll never know I, I, I don't doubt that for a minute but that there's something which is 
uh, systematically unknowable and beyond any, its presence makes no difference. That's the idea that verificationism in a very weak and mm. gentle form says, mm. baloney, baloney. If it exists, it makes a difference. And if it makes a difference, you can, if you, if you can't detect the difference, then what are you talking about? And I think most people are verificationists about, for instance, the theory that there are seven, exactly seven, invisible gremlins inside every piston of every gas-powered engine. And they don't add to the horsepower. They don't take up any space. But they're there. They're there. We just wave that aside. That's baloney. That's not worth talking about. Philosophers talk about things that aren't worth talking about a lot. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. say that they're not worth time. So there's verificationism. Functionalism, yeah. Functionalism, though, is, is sort of tricky because there's tight versions of functionalism, and then there's broader versions of functionalism. Uh, does a misfunction or a malfunction count as a function? Some of the things, some of the most important phenomena in the mind are examples of dysfunctioning or malfunctioning systems. But in order to understand them, you have to understand them as the system as a whole, as a functional system. Yeah, I think so, it's using function in, in two different ways, because so, something that's malfunctioning, you can have a functionalist understanding of that quite easily. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, the term epiphenomenalism yeah. is actually historically misused. That's a good, um, good one. When it was first introduced, it was the, uh, the the sound, the whistle made by a steam engine. Not the toot-toot whistle, but just the, the, uh, the accompanying sound of the steam going through the engine. And that was, uh, that was a, an epiphenomenon. It wasn't playing any functional role. Mm -hmm. It's playing a causal role, and you know, you could pick it up on your tape recorder if you had a tape recorder. There weren't any in those days. You can hear it. Uh, it could even make you go deaf. But it was that wasn't a function. Mm -hmm. So epiphenomena were cause effects, which weren't functions, like the, like the, the color way, the phone like way, the, like the color of the handle of your knife. Yeah. It can be any color, but it, the color has an effect, but it's not a function. Well, uh, I'm a functionalist in the sense which says uh, things don't all have to have functions, but they ha have to have effects. That's, that's the verification in me. <clears throat> Verificationist <laughs> in me. And the functionalist is, and you won't understand most anything interesting in the world if you are also a functionalist because things have functions. Yeah, the, the use of functionalism has functions and also malfunctions. The, the use of functionalist in, in the consciousness uh, world is that it, it's multiply realized in different media. It doesn't have to be in a physical brain. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. functionalism, therefore, in the consciousness studies, would have great implications for uh, artificial intelligence, which, which we yeah. talked about a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's here's an interesting new tidbit. Um, 
uh, I use the word fungible to talk about function because that's actually the, the oh. that's the, the the root. But uh, uh, mm-hmm. some things are, are fungible and some things aren't. Uh, uh, if if you if you own an, a painting worth you know a million dollars and you loan it to me and instead of giving you the painting back i give you a million dollars no 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 no. i have to give you back the very thing that you loaned me that's a non-fungible thing well now is there any part of the brain that's non-fungible is there any part of is or any mental thing is there any part of the brain that couldn't in principle be replaced with you know wire and silicon and some other chemistry and uh, and the functionalist says no no in principle you could you could make a brain you know out of silicon and transistors and so forth uh as long as it does all the functions right and you subscribe to that yeah yeah, and okay. as for behaviorism, all science is behavioristic. Think. Let's think about weather. Once you've explained all the behavior of the weather, the humidity, the wind, the damage, the rain, the heat, the, mm-hmm. the ozone layer and all that, once you've explained all the behavior, that's it. There's nothing left to explain. Yeah, the difference in behaviorism is that uh, you you deal with the, the first person experience, which um, theoretically the weather does doesn't have. So that exactly. would be. The but then, but then, and and, and that's your. I think that's your point. That's your point. Yeah, <laughs> that, we, deal with the, we deal with the first person experience uh, in people with heterophenomenology, which looks at all the effects of first person experience on the world. Hmm. That's how we know consciousness exists. Hmm. That. People can tell us about it. Martian behaviorists who came, suppose they suppose they weren't, no, I don't know, even know how to make sense of this, but suppose very, very different intelligent beings came in, they studied us, and they learned our languages. They'd know all about human consciousness, because how do we know about human, by talking to each other? Mm-hmm. Reading novels, first-person point-of-view novels, and by saying, ow, that hurts. Mm-hmm. Where does it hurt, Johnny? And so forth. Mm-hmm. And and putting probes in the body and giving people aspirin. All of this, the sum total of that, it's all behavior. Mm. And, and the question is, is there something more beyond that? Behaviorism with Skinner had a, a, great, uh, a great run. It was the primary way of thinking. And then it, it fell into... Uh, into uh, dis, uh, either disrepair or, or uh, distaste. Uh, Noam Chomsky had a role in that. And people sort of now look at behaviorism as a theory like logical positivism. It sort of uh, ran and, and, and here's an interesting parallel with panpsychism. It's a good idea gone one step too far. Yeah. <laughs> Skinner, Skinner was in a sense, right about behavior, and that's all there is. But mm. his attempt was to define it all without using any intentional terms and without using any functional terms. Right. right. And and that just doesn't work. So you, you have to relax a bit about what you think is real, but then 
when you do that, you don't then add magical mystery stuff to the middle. There ain't any of that. Skinner was right about that. You say this is a great time to be working on consciousness, and I just want to throw at you some of the current uh, neurophysiological kinds of theories oh, and get yeah. your sense of what you like or don't like or how you think they articulate with your over overarching uh, um, uh, mechanisms and way of working. So there's the global workspace theory, integrated information theory that Giulio Celloni and, and uh, uh, Christoph Koch work on uh, higher order theories, predictive theories. There are lots of others too, but those are some of the major categories. And I think there's something right about each one of them. Um, mainly, I think the global workspace theory is on the right track. As I say in Consciousness Explained, yeah. my, my uh, and, and I've worked with, with Stan DeHaan and others on various things and suggested experiments. Basically, if I have to take sides in those battles, I'm on the global workspace side. Okay. Um, uh, Giulio Tononi's idea about integrated information theory is is an interesting idea, but I think it's not really a, a practical idea. It's it's uh, it's mathematics that can't really be put to use, as I understand it. Uh, I've talked about this with some heavy duty mathematicians and uh, computer scientists and. They pretty well convinced me that it's it, it's not uh, smoke and mirrors, but it's but it's 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 not practical. I'll t I'll tell you one thing about it, which I think is at least insightful. Compare a brace of oxen pulling a wagon to a sperm whale. Now the brace of oxen. That's there's two integrated senses is the one on the left and the one on the right and they're they're independent even if they're coordinated mm -hmm. now think of a sperm whale with one eye on each side of this head melville has a passage in moby dick where he speculates that maybe a sperm whale is dexter and sinister there's the basically two consciousness is the left consciousness and the right consciousness in here and he observes behavior where sperm whales get confused and they seem to be fighting like a pair of oxen in their yoke uh not not being able to pull together and you know there might be some truth to that there um uh, uh you can you can blindfold a rabbit and teach the left eye one thing and the right eye is completely naive hmm. uh, uh, uh so you you this is the idea of integration as playing a role in consciousness i think is itself a good idea hmm. but i don't think the the mathematics uh uh i might be wrong about this but i don't think it it really pays off much I, I i see integrated information theory as really two distinct um, uh, ideas that have sort of been yoked together. One is a test of the presence of consciousness, the phi, and uh, with the mathematical, and that might affect uh, comatose patients and very useful. The other is what literally the conscious precept is, and there are some complex ideas about nth dimensional space or whatever that each precept as its own. So I think those are two kind of radically different ideas that have been put together, but not 
you know that that's that's another conversation. I I, I want to ask you also about uh, uh, your your buddy Nicholas Humphrey, who's a good friend of Closer to Truth and us as well, because he he has um, uh, obviously you you certainly agree on oh, the materialistic approach, but his approach is that consciousness is not a gradient. Now he's, he's, he admits it's speculative, it, but it is a very uh, a late evolutionary step function kind of development so that perhaps only mammals and birds have yes. phenomenal consciousness yes. whereas other other uh, uh, forms of of, of, of life have uh, cognitive consciousness but not phenomenal consciousness well uh, yeah um I think there's a lot to what Nick says I don't like the phenomenal cognitive distinction I don't think that's been well drawn but I do think that he's right that uh, consciousness in the form that we know from being human beings is so hugely different from the consciousness, say, of a lobster or a fish or a snail or a worm that, that, you know, is that a sharp distinction? No, it's not a sharp. Here's where maybe we disagree. I, I think... Like all these, there are gradations in nature. Nature, the the very few bright lines in life. Uh, but I think there's a huge difference, and I think he's right that warm-blooded animals, with the extra energy they have, have added dimensions, powers, and problems to consciousness that. Other creatures don't have. Okay. And what and, and and one of the one of the interesting marks of this is whether they play. There's wonderful video of birds playing, mm. sliding sliding down snowy roofs and doing other sorts of amazing things, and of course mammals otters and, and monkeys and so forth. It's not sharp, but it's it's worth taking seriously. I think that human consciousness and dog consciousness are more similar than human consciousness and chimp consciousness. Mm. Mm. Because we have unconsciously selected dogs to be more human. Mm-hmm. They're much more sensitive to pain than, say, wolves. Hmm. A wolf. That's interesting. A, a wolf will will gnaw its own paw off to get out of the trap. Hmm. Dog will do that. Hmm. So I think I think humans and dogs suffer more. Than any other animal. That's a very convenient view, but I think it's probably true. Dan, I you know we could talk for two weeks. I I just love talking about all these subjects, and I have about ten more subjects, the equivalent of what we've talked about consciousness. So we we're not we don't have time. Uh, so what I want to do is just list some of the other areas that you've uh, focused on that I'm fascinated by, and just get your quick. Uh, reaction to each one and we'll start with free will uh obviously you're a physicalist and a determinist 
uh, and and at the same time strongly support a, a your kind or a kind of free will, not a libertarian free will that you could do otherwise, but um, you 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 make the point that determinism does not mean inevitability. Uh, yeah. You know, half the time I really understand that. <laughs> half the time I don't. <laughs> well, um, inevitability, of course, if you look at etymology, it means unavoidability. Yeah. So let's look at avoiding. Does anything avoid anything? Oh, yeah. Look at life. Uh, uh, antelopes avoid the teeth of lions and... Uh, uh, fish avoid the net, and avoiding is one of one of living things' greatest powers. And uh, we can also make robots that avoid things, uh, and chess playing computers that avoid things. So, inevitability, inevitability, not inevitability, yeah. is manifestly real. Some things are controlled and some things aren't. The things that are controlled are can avoid things, and the things that aren't controlled just bounce down the hill or whatever. And and they they can't a rock rolling down a mountain can't avoid anything. A skier skiing down the mountain can avoid things. Uh, now, all of that makes sense uh, for sure, but uh, it it doesn't seem to affect. The, defi- the, the definition, at least of hard determinism, where at any given moment in a closed physical system, there is a uh, a, a next se- sequence of state of affairs of everything, which yeah. is non-avoidable. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, if, you, if, you, if you look down at the ultra-microscopic level, you find that's true, but th- that's the only level at which that makes any difference. So uh, does that mean you're a top-down um, kind of uh, uh, a theorist that the top-down has uh, has causal uh, impact uh, that all no, the together? No, no, it's not quite that. It's not saying that that utter indeterminism reigns at the top. It just says that if you want to know the competences of things, you don't want to look at the basic causal level, you want to look up a level or two. Um, Yeah, but is that not like a user interface illusion then? It's an extremely useful illusion, life depends on it. Yes, agree, agree. So, So it's a real illusion that life depends on that we are avoiders. <laughs> okay. And and uh, determinism not only doesn't hinder that, it aids it. If you if you want to avoid a lightning strike, the randomness of lightning strikes, from your point of view, is a hindrance. You don't know where to duck. You don't right. know which way to zig or zag. Uh, uh, you can escape from predictable disasters. You can't escape from unpredictable ones. Now, what I think the problem is, is that people, philosophers mainly, but other people, they've realized that it's very important to be unpredictable. 
If you're predictable, you're a money pump. You're a sh- you're 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 doomed. You're going to be taken advantage of by controllers. If you want to control yourself, you have to hide your controls from others. That's part of mathematical theory of games by uh, von Neumann and Morgenstern. And people have taken that idea absolutely right. And they've elevated it and they've said, but you don't really have free will unless you're absolutely unpredictable. No, you just have to be unpredictable by whatever is in the neighborhood. Hmm. If you're unpredictable by whatever is in the neighborhood, you got some elbow room. I, I, impossible to do a statistical analysis, but I would think that most philosophers who are hard determinists um, are not compatibilists um, in in the real no, sense. No. I don't think so. I think I I think compatibilism is actually the the dominant view in philosophy, but you know. Who's counting? It's a majority. Yeah, I, I, I would say you're a, a radical compatibilist or a compatibilist realist or compatibilism realism or something like that. That, yeah, yeah. that it's a real something. It's not just a, an artificial something. Yeah, yeah. As as real as real as color and do, colors and dollars. <laughs> okay, let's talk about uh, artificial intelligence, AI. I, I just commend the book, uh, which I didn't expect uh, to be so rich in its understanding of the history of artificial intelligence. Dan, you've been involved in this, and I didn't realize chairing various committees over the years and contests. Uh, it's really uh, a, a special benefit of this uh, of Dan's memoirs is to follow the history of the Turing test, uh, what's called dig- Digital Dan, where Dan's works have been a million words have been uh, have been uh, put uh, to uh, the uh, large language module uh, 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 modules to to learn um, and fooling people. It's it's, it's a wonderful uh, education about uh, AI in Dan's book. It's a it's a special benefit. I just want to ask you one question uh, about oh well maybe two. One is the possibility or probability of AI consciousness in using the term consciousness exactly as you would use the term uh, for a human being. Is that uh, possible in principle? And if it's in principle, it obviously will happen with scientific advances. Second question is AI danger, um, which a lot of people are talking about. And I think you're a little less concerned than perhaps some, some others. So AI consciousness, AI danger. Absolutely, AI consciousness is possible. Look, we're robots made of robots made of robots made of robots, and so in principle, we can we we could make uh, a conscious robot. But my slogan is: we want smart tools, not artificial colleagues, and we want smart tools, not artificial t- colleagues, so that we don't have any compunctions about why would, why would why would why would they be artificial if it's the exact same kind of consciousness that we have? What's the difference? Because uh, it was made by artifice, that's all. Well, what, what, is that any different than the artifice of uh, sexuality to make babies? Yeah, there's some there's some important differences. A lot of top-down uh, design goes into artifices that doesn't that doesn't go into uh, 
there's some really big differences. Uh, you are made of trillions of robots that have agendas, yep. cells, and motor proteins and things like that. That um, the motor proteins aren't even alive, but you couldn't live without them. Um, and and the result is a, is a coordinated system which has no operating system, which cobbles together a collaborative detente operating system. Some people go deranged. Some people get obsessive. Some right. people lead very controlled lives. Uh, just enough. Um, an artificial system, if we, we could make one that was as chaotic in its depth as we are, that's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And don't worry about whether it's conscious. Don't worry about whether it's sentient. Worry about the fact that it can reproduce. Mm. That's what really worries me, is that AI is making counterfeit people that will fool us. And whether they're sentient or not, just that's a red herring. They're dangerous. Mm. They can destroy trust. They can turn us all paranoid. The more we live in the virtual world where we don't know whether we're talking to real human beings or cheap knockoff semi-hemi-demi persons, if we can't tell the difference there, we're in deep trouble. Well, yeah, but that's the first stage. Uh, but if you let that process go on and it becomes... It'll get worse. Well, well, I mean, I'm not. I, I, that that's a value judgment, but it it depends how you define it. I mean, it could get better, and 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 the chaos that you're talking about can become more refined, and and maybe that's the the the, the Darwinian future. I, I, I'm just trying to I'm just yeah. trying to see what follows from the arguments you're making. Well, the reason I think it'll get worse is because you have to remember the main question you always want to ask about Darwinian process. Cui bono, who benefits? Mm -hmm. Right now, we have lots of fake people, deep fakes. Yeah. And they're very easy to reproduce. Yeah. One of the, one of the scariest things about AI is the ease with which digital things can be perfectly reproduced. Well, do they mutate? Yes. Well, if they reproduce and mutate, then there are going to be more of them. Which ones are there going to be more of? The ones that mutate and replicate faster and better and more efficiently, that trick us, that get us to, to be the, the, uh, vectors, the midwives, the midwives yeah. of their birth. And those are going to be ones that attract our attention and control our attention. And there's no reason to suspect they have any care for us at all. Hmm. They're going to be viruses. Viruses aren't alive. We know they reproduce. And we know that although most viruses, 99.99999% of viruses are harmless, 
The ones that are harmful are one of the greatest threats on the planet. And these are going to be digital viruses that reproduce their memes. They don't have our interests at heart, and we can't make them have our interests at heart. Yeah, but so you're domesticated or not? You, as Darwin said, you domesticate something if you control its reproduction. Are we controlling their reproduction? No. That's why we need laws. That's why we need very strict laws with teeth. That's why the big companies went to Congress and begged for regulation. And the Congress said, we've never seen an industry ask for regulation before. That's because the people on the inside in AI realize that they've let the genie out of the bottle. We've, we've got the, we've got the, the sorcerer's apprentice, those brooms are multiplying very fast and it's going to be an awful pandemic of counterfeit people if we don't take steps now. The argument is um, is what's better for human life, human beings. It's not an argument for uh, what is would make a better grand state of affairs of the universe, because yeah. that system could be better in some ways than human beings. Right. right. So and it, it's a self, the dinosaurs. I'm on. I'm on your side. I'm on your side. I want to preserve. Yeah, you know, yeah, children. Uh, but um, but in the great scheme of things, I'm not sure that has a, a logical. Yeah, yes, and that's that's a point of view that can be. A, that's a perspective that can be adopted. Doug Hofstadter has a has a wonderful paper called uh, uh, "Who Will Be We in." What year did you say? It may have been even 2023, which is this year. Um, I'll have to go back and look what the year was in the title, where where he imagined a world where artificial intelligences um, became the preservers of poetry and music and opera and mathematics and so forth, and our human descendants became more oafish and and stupid and anti-intellectual and and uh, destructive and he could imagine a future where we would prefer that our uh, digital offspring our brain children replace our biological children mm-hmm. so that that's that's a possible that's a possible future and uh uh I have some sympathy for that view, but I think in the process, uh, the damage, it may well lead to the, uh, if not the extinction, the um, degradation of human beings in a terrible way. Yeah, just a few words about uh, breaking the spell. Uh, we don't have much time to talk about it uh, in terms of your work on uh, idea memes, viruses of the mind, uh, the, the spell of religion and what, why that needs to be broken. But I, I, I want to focus on one thing in the book which, uh, which struck me in that section. And we've talked about religion and God in, in previous uh, discussions we've had over the years. Uh, but you said, and this 
there might this might have been the only time in your book that you said this because every other topic you're brimming with enthusiasm and with with love and excitement uh, about the nature of the subject but but here you said uh, the work that you did specifically after the book uh, came out was not a labor uh, of love but more of an obligation um and and you said you actually even had some regret over the amount of time that you spent because that's the opportunity cost of our lives yeah yeah that's right i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that um it was richard dawkins that uh sort of first put me onto the idea of writing about religion and he wrote a piece for the guardian and i wrote a a, a piece for the new york times uh and it drew a lot of attention and people began urging me to write a book about religion and about atheism. Well, I didn't want to write a book about atheism because I think that's a boring subject. It's, it's, it's shooting fish in a barrel. Um, um, but I did think that I could apply my ideas about evolution and consciousness and cultural evolution to the phenomenon of religion as a natural phenomenon. It is a natural phenomenon, and it should be studied the same way the petroleum industry and the banking industry and diplomacy and who knows what should be studied. It should be studied objectively and with all the tools at our disposal. No kid gloves, no hands off. So that's the point of the title, Breaking the Spell. You should look at religion with the same steely hard eye that you use when you look at viruses and banking and capitalism and every other important topic. And uh, uh, so I wrote Breaking the Spell. And then I had to spend some time doing what I call book maintenance, you know, defending it against misrepresentation and critics that were trying to distort its message and so forth. And what that did is it took me off the, I was sitting pretty in the world of consciousness and brain research when I started that project. And I, I lost about four, four years mm. uh, to the, where I devoted my time to, to that labor of obligation. Now I've clawed my way back. I'm pretty near the top again, but that's thanks to a, uh, the wonderful Canadian Institute for Advanced Research group on, on mind, brain, and consciousness that I've been the senior advisor to for a number of years. It's kept me in contact with the cutting edge of the field, and it's been the great joy of my life. Well, that's terrific, Dan. Uh, I uh, look forward to uh, uh, continuing our conversation. Many other things that you, you've had, just to list them, uh, uh, how humor can re-engineer the, the mind, uh, a lot of wrong ideas that other people have had that you've, particularly in evolution, that uh, that to me are very exciting. But um, I, I'd like to maybe conclude with uh, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, what you call a stable solution to a lot of the problems that um, first starts with materialism reigns and then that the major problems of consciousness, meaning, and free will uh, all have, and I think I'm quoting you, all have accounts that owe more to biology than to physics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
physics is one layer too deep to see the patterns that make all the difference. Um, if a physicist could do a Laplacian ex, uh, account of Wall Street, nobody could understand it. If you want to understand Wall Street, you have to talk about money and greed and uh, and foresight and prediction and so forth. You have to go up several layers to understand that. And so we have to understand that we live in a world that has these amazing tiers or layers of complexity from atomic physics, subatomic physics, all the way up to, to poetry and music and art and humor. And to put them all into one big picture is, to me, that's what philosophy's job is. My, one of my favorite quotes is is uh, from Wilfred Sellers, who once defined philosophy as as the study of how things, in the broadest sense of the term, hang together, in the broadest sense of the term. Wonderful. And that means how do home runs and Christmas carols and poems and revolutions and catastrophes live in the same world with molecules and atoms and photons. If you can see all the different layers, even dimly, even with, you know, mistakes, lots of mistakes, that's, that's the goal. Your last chapter is what if I'm wrong? which is a wonderful uh, way to conclude and uh, a wonderful idea for philosophers. As they say, a philosopher would rather use another philosopher's toothbrush than his nomenclature. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines about philosophy. Um, so here, here's my question. Um, would you like to there have been or be a god with life after death? And I want to pose different people. When I talked to Steven Weinberg, uh, one of the great thinkers of uh, of our of our lifetime, sadly no longer with us, um, I had the sense he lamented the fact that there was no meaning. He wasn't happy about it. He 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 was very sorry. He was sure it was true that there was no meaning. The more we learn about the universe, the more how pointless we see. His classic line. But but he felt very bad about that. On the other hand, Tom Nagel and Marvin Minsky affirmatively say they don't want God. Mar Marvin told me that the reason he didn't want God is that if there were a God, he'd have to give God credit for the mathematical theorem that he had developed, and he didn't want to share the credit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah, typical. Think, <laughs> uh, uh, for me, I'm uh, firmly in the camp of, of, of Tom and 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 Marvin. Um, uh, it's not a trickle down theory of wonderfulness it's a it's a bubble up theory of wonderfulness why should meaning be better if it is uh dependent on the meaning of some unbelievably magnificent super duper god we make meaning the fact that we make meaning is fantastic that we can make meaning 
You have lifeless planets where there is no meaning. We are unbelievably fortunate to live on a planet where meaning has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And now we live in a splendid world filled with riches. And that's wonderful. And one of the best things about it is it doesn't last forever. Mm. Take advantage of it while you can. Make add to the add to the meaning. Pay it forward. Make a little more meaning for others to see. Help others see the meaning that's all around us. That's the best thing we, we that's the best thing we can do. Dan, many thanks. I always love talking to you. It is a terrific book. I really recommend it to everyone on so many levels. I've been thinking, please spend spend some time with the life of daniel dennett it will be a great uh a great joy and a great uh, lucidation of so many ideas for everyone uh viewers can watch daniel dennett in 12 closer to truth tv episodes and 22 exclusive videos on the closer to truth website and the closer to truth youtube channel dan thanks again so much it's great to see you all the best thanks everyone for watching Thank you, Robert. As usual, you ask fantastic questions. Thank you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.